The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for all the best unadulterated advice, tips, techniques, strategies, and answers to your questions about investment real estate. Today is question and answer week, which means that without your questions, there is no show. You may send questions by going to askvena.com, clicking the Ask Vena a Question tab, filling in your question and from where you are writing, and uh, hitting the send button. It'll come here to us via email. You can also, if you'd like, a quicker and surer answer, give us a call on our toll-free number at 877-772-9658. That's 877-772-9658 here in the studio until about 10 minutes till 6 Eastern Time. Welcome to all the folks who are listening to us online. And a quick explanation for those of you who are new to real life real estate investing. This is not a webinar. This is an actual broadcast out over the airwaves radio show on WMKV FM here in Cincinnati at 89.3. We happen to also be simulcasting online at uh, WMKVFM.org, which is how you are probably listening to it. WMKV is member-supported public radio and uh, always grateful for you listeners and also for your support of the station. So if you have questions for Question and Answer Week, again, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or... Go to askvina.com, that's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A, dot com. Fill in your question on the Ask a Question form. Make sure and let us know where you are in the world. And hit the send button and we will receive it here in the studio, just like we did from Lisa in Santa Fe, New Mexico, just before the show. She says, so far in the real estate world, I've only been a homeowner. Now I'm starting to look for my first commercial property. The idea is to have a downstairs studio for a business and an upstairs residence. Is there anything in particular I need to know before I look into this setup? For example, if I live in the residence, will it still qualify for the standard homeowner tax credits? I'm thinking for taxes, that would probably qualify as the situation where you have a designated home office. 
I'm guessing it all changes if you decide to rent the residential portion of the setup. Tell me what I ought to know before getting into this. Well, Lisa, the first thing that you ought to know is that if this is a, uh, a potential major tax impact on you, that you need to talk to a qualified tax expert who understands your, I mean, who like has looked at your particular income and expense situation. I can tell you that in the case uh, where a building is partly being used as your ho- your home and partly being used for business purposes, whether that be a studio or whether you, you live in a two-family, you rent out half of it and you live in the other half of it, you can tax treat the two areas differently based on their square footage and usage. So for instance, if you were talking about a two family where you were going to live in half and a renter was going to live in the other half, you could take the tax benefits of it being a rental for the rental half. For instance, you could depreciate half of the property and at the same time takes take the benefits of being an owner occupant uh, for the other half. Now, the primary benefit that accrues to you as an owner occupant that does not accrue to you as the owner of that business that is perhaps renting out part of your house, even though it's your business, is the uh, ability to sell the property for a profit and not pay capital gains taxes on that profit. So if you buy a house for $30,000, and you sell it in 10 years for $300,000 under the current tax code. If that is your home, if you have lived in it for two of the past five years, you don't pay any taxes on that gain. As an investor, if you'd bought a rental property for 30 and sold it for 310 years later, you would have a $270,000 capital gain to deal with tax-wise. It seems unlikely that you're going to run across numbers like that, where you're going to sell it such a huge uh, profit in in 10 years or whenever you decide to sell it, that it's going to make that much of a difference in your taxes on the back end. And I'm guessing your tax professional is going to tell you that you will only be able, if you're treating half the property as a business for tax purposes year over year, you're saying this half is my studio, I'm depreciating it, this half is my house, I am not, uh, that you can also treat the same half as your residence when you sell it and the other half as a uh, business when you sell it and uh, pay, pay capital gains taxes on perhaps half the gain or some portion of the gain based on the square footage of the business part versus your personal part. But uh, really, everything that you can deduct as a homeowner, your your interest, your real estate taxes, and so on. You can also deduct as the business owner who is renting or has some sort of agreement on the bottom half. I think the other thing that you have to concern yourself with here is if your business is of a nature that there is any liability potentially attached to it. For instance, if it were a workout business and you had a gym downstairs and someone could potentially become injured on the gym equipment, you will need to also consult with an asset protection attorney about how you need to structure that setup so that it is clear that the business is its own entity. And even though it co-occupies space with you, it is not you. And one of the things they're probably going to recommend 
is that the business pay you rent on that space and pay it every month, just like it was any other tenant. That's a good thing, though, because it all that helps you convert some of your earned income into rental income, which is not as highly taxed. So, yeah, it's uh, that's that's the best I can do for you, Lisa. I would definitely contact somebody who is familiar with both the tax and liability consequences of various setups for this. But appreciate your question. Good luck. It is real life real estate investing. It's question and answer week, which means. It's all about what do you guys want to talk about. And I'm talking to you guys out in the listener world. Call with your questions at 877-772-9658 or send an email by going to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And that means uh, you got to ask questions or there's not a show. And don't, don't be shy. There's no such thing as a stupid question here on Real Life Real Estate. If it's really stupid, I won't read it. Just got to go to askvina.com, fill in the form, the form that says Ask Vina a Question, hit the send button, and it will come here to us in the studio via email. You can also call at 877-772-9658. Again, all topics are on the table today, whether you want to talk about something a previous guest discussed or a management question or a wholesaling question, financing question, management question, whatever turns you on. This is a question that I just received from Christina, who lives in Indiana. She says, Vina, I was just sent a property by a large wholesale company that was li- that they have listed for $64,900. I looked at this property prior to their purchase of it. They are predicting a $30,000 repair expense. I know that the repair expense is actually closer to $60,000 due to some severe termite damage. I walked away from this deal without making an offer, but I do not know if there is anything that I should be doing about this wholesaling company offering this deal to other people without giving them the information or for that matter, whether I can do anything about it. Don't you hate that? Don't don't you hate it when you see wholesalers marketing properties that you're familiar with at prices that you know that no investor is going to be able to pay. And, and and if they do pay it, they're going to probably lose money on the deal. And no, there's really not much you can do about it. Uh, one thing that I often do when I receive emails like that is I will send an email back and say, uh, hey, did you guys miss this? Because uh, some of these some of these companies, uh, some of these folks are just, they're just not good evaluators. Okay, they just don't they they really didn't realize that it needed $60,000 worth of work. Some of them um, are so big, the companies are so big that they are always turning over staff. So they may have had some new guy go look at the property and he didn't know how to look for termite damage. And uh, I'm guessing with a $30,000 swing in the repairs, it's more than just the termite damage. But uh, some of them, I, I don't know. I, I think they just, they just make their living selling properties to people who've never bought a property before and don't know that that's not a good deal at that kind of price. So uh, I will send an email back and say, hey, did you miss this? 
and I've I've in one or two cases had somebody reply and say, oh my gosh, I absolutely did miss it. What should I do? I've got another contract for too much money. And I think, yay them, they're trying to do the right thing. The only exception, and this is going to be a rare exception about whether you can do anything, is if the wholesaler happens to be something like a vendor member of your local association. Most most local associations throughout the country have vendor memberships. Most of them, if they hear reports that a particular vendor is consistently behaving in a way that would not be advantageous for the membership to do business with them, uh, will have at least a stern talk with that member, a vendor member, and uh, may even have some mechanism by which they can eject them from the group so that they're not at least coming to the associations and doing this sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you can send an email back and say, hey, did you not notice this? That may or may not have any effect depending on whether the problem is they didn't notice it or the problem is they did and they're one of these businesses that functions on, not to put too fine a point on it, possibly ripping off new investors. Uh, And you can see if they're a member of your local association and take it to the association. And that's about it. That's about all you can do. So, uh, but a good catch and, you know, I, I wish, I wish, I sort of wish there were things that we could do, but on the other hand, uh, I'm, I'm not in favor of over-regulation either. I'm in favor of educating all of the buyers in the whole world so that they know to catch that kind of thing and won't get sucked in by it. Uh, okay, so we're starting to get some more questions here via... Uh, the askvina.com website. Uh, this is a question from John, who is in Anderson, South Carolina. He says, do you prefer a sales contract or an option agreement when negotiating the purchase of a short sale? And please explain why. So John's question is, there's a, there's a, there's a property that is in foreclosure you want to step in, put that property under contract, and then negotiate a short sale on the property with the bank. So you need to get it tied up before you start the negotiation process, because otherwise you can spend months and months and months and months negotiating a lower payoff, and then the seller can sell the property to someone else. Ask me how I learned that. The standard, John, for uh, for that, that tying up is a purchase contract. And the reason is the bank wants to see a purchase contract before they start negotiating. They want to see that someone has stepped in and said, we're making this offer under the following terms. An option agreement, because it allows you to get out simply by agreeing to lose your option fee. Uh, I would be very surprised if a bank would would open a short sale negotiation based on that. So I would have a purchase contract. I would make that purchase contract contingent upon the bank accepting the short sale. That's so that so that when the seller signs an agreement that says I will take all this money less than what I owe, it lets him out of the deal if the bank doesn't accept the short sale. And I would also go ahead and put in an inspection agreement, uh, an inspection contingency. And here's why. Short sales, when they are successful, which is not nearly as common as it, as it used to be, can literally take months to negotiate. I am in the last stages of negotiating a short sale that began in August of 2000. 
and 10. Yes, if they delay another couple of weeks, we will be two years into this short sale. After two years, when you finally get the yes on the short sale, if the property's been vacant, it might not be in the same condition that it was at the time at which you made the offer. You may need to, after all of that, renegotiate based on the fact that it is now moldy, vandalized, roof's been leaking, whatever the case may be. So purchase contract is the answer to your question. Uh, we need to go to the phones. Let's talk to Anthony on line one in Cincinnati. Anthony, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. I was, my question is kind of following up on the person's earlier question with the wholesale company. Um, if you've never actually evaluated properties, how do you learn the proper way of doing that? That's a great question, Anthony, and, and one that I, I wish more people would pay attention to because it does, you, you realize it doesn't matter what you're going to end up doing in real estate. It doesn't matter if you're going to buy rentals, if you're going to buy properties to lease option, if you're going to sandwich lease, if you're going to wholesale. You kind of need to know how to evaluate them, right? Right. I mean, how do you know what to offer? If you don't know what a house is worth and what it needs and how much that's going to cost, you do not know how to make an offer. I, I don't know what number you would be basing an offer on if you did not know those three things. The The answer is, um, it's it's sort of multifold, okay? Okay. Almost every, I'll I, I tell you, the, the very best way to learn property inspection and pricing is by being in properties. It's not it's not that easy to, to teach somebody, well, here's what you're looking for and here's what it would cost to fix it unless you're standing in a property with them pointing pointing at the problem most real estate investors associations that i know of at least once a year will have some sort of inexpensive property tour where you can where where they'll take you around for you know 99 bucks or something they'll take you around and and with experts and look inside the properties and say you know here's how i'd fix this and here's how i fix this and here's how i fix this so look for one of those that's that's the number one thing the number two thing is when Go out and look at go out and look at houses. Okay, go out and look at at when sellers call you about houses. When you see listed properties you're interested in, carry with you some something where you can take lots of notes on what you're seeing and take pictures of what you're seeing. Because here here's the thing: here's people get scared off by the repair estimation thing uh, because they're like, oh my gosh, you know, houses are so complicated. There, there's so much so much can go wrong with them really when you get right down to it there's about 40 things that you commonly see go wrong with a house the furnace can be bad the plumbing can be bad the wiring can be bad the roof can be bad the walls can need work the kitchen can need you see what i'm saying it's not okay. it's not an endless list so just by the by the practice of going into a lot of these houses and looking at things that that clearly look like there's something wrong Taking a picture of that, writing it down, and then seeing it over and over again, you're going you're gonna to start to get used to the idea that, okay, yeah, I'm seeing the same thing over and over again. If you will go to your local RIA meetings with your notes in those pictures and talk to some people who've been in the business for a while and say, hey, listen, I saw this house and it, you know, the, the roof, it was weird. The shingles looked new, but it was wavy. The roof was wavy, and I don't understand why, and here's a picture of it. What happened? They will be able to tell you in 35 seconds exactly what's wrong, exactly what you're going to have to do to fix it, and exactly what it'll cost to fix it. Okay. So eventually you'll sort of develop your own price list 
you know, a, a, a roof costs $175 a square to replace. Plumbing, if it's a one-story house, to replace the stolen plumbing with plastic costs $1,200, that sort of thing. And you can get a lot of help from that uh, on that uh, sort of informally, but it's even better if you can find one of these property tours to go on where someone is explaining it in a more organized fashion. Uh, now, the other, the other piece of that is finding the after-repaired value, right? Okay. Because it's one thing to say, I know what it needs, I know what it'll cost to fix it. It's a completely different thing to say, what, what will it be worth when it is fixed? And that is a matter of... Uh, generally do, doing what we call running comps, which means looking for sold properties in the same area that are about the same size and about the same construction, but were fixed up when they sold. How much did that sell for? That's the, that's, that's the after repair value of the property. That is much easier to learn in a classroom okay. or, or from a, a home study course or something like that. Uh, do you belong to Cincinnati Rhea, Anthony? Uh, I don't belong currently. I was a member before. But I'm not currently a member now. Okay, well, you, you might want to check that out because, amongst other things, they have a large, large library of home study materials and books and things like that, uh, many of which cover how to find after repaired value on properties. Okay, because I, well, I know, unfortunately, I missed the, the actual tour. I know it was this month, I believe, for Cincinnati, the home tour. So, mm-hmm. um, so I was trying to find another way to try to actually learn how to go out evaluate properties properly mm-hmm. well look at lots of them take take notes when you're confused about something take photos bring them to somebody who's done rehabs before and generally they'll be able to tell you very quickly what's the problem because we see the same things going wrong over and over and over and over again and anybody who's done more than about 20 rehabs has fixed everything you are ever going to see in a property okay okay all right, thank you, Zena. Thank you very much for your call, Anthony. Appreciate it. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And you can call in, as Anthony did, or you can send us an email. The phone number is 877-772-9658. The email is by going to askvena.com, askvena.com, and filling out the little form that says... Ask me a question. Also, while you're there, be sure and click the "Try the Free E-Letter" button because each and every month, each and every week, excuse me, uh, we send out an email to all the real life real estate listeners who have opted into our list that both has uh, information about what's going on in the real estate world and an announcement of the upcoming radio show. Because how often have you meant to listen to real life real estate? You've been thinking about it all week long. I've got to listen at five o'clock Eastern time. And then you've completely forgotten. Well, we'll send you a reminder if you sign up for that free e-letter at askvena.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can also tell all of your friends about Real Life Real Estate Investing here on WMKB. uh, That's good. WMKV. By friending us on Facebook. Go to realliferealestateradio.com. That's our uh, official Facebook page for Real Life Real Estate Investing. When you go there and like that page, you not only will be joining, I'm checking because the number is constantly increasing, 
you will be joining 5,336 other folks who like real life real estate investing and of course that'll show up on your Facebook page and then all of your real estate friends will know to listen in also um, extra special thing for those of you who make lots of use of your smartphones there's a new app called real life real estate mobile.com if you go to that, you can get WMKV's radio app and you can listen to the show from your phone or tablet. Gosh, Mike, remember when we used to take faxes for questions because we didn't even have email in the studio? And, <laughs> and, the, and actually, we used to get mail sometimes. We used to get like things in envelopes with questions in them. And now we're like, oh, yeah, send us an email, give us a call, get our, get our mobile app. Wow, I feel old. 877-772-9658 is the number here in the studio. If you have a question here on Question and Answer Week, you can also uh, go to askvina.com, fill out the Ask Vina a Question form, and send it on over via email. Remember, it is Question and Answer Week, and of course, you will have my eternal gratitude for just asking a question so that we have a, something to talk about here on the program. Uh, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati has its uh, first meeting for the month of August coming up a week from Thursday. And uh, it, it's just, uh, I usually don't announce the meetings a week out, but uh, since we just had the call from Anthony, uh, it is hands-on rehab night. So the entire evening is going to be uh, demonstrations at various tables uh, for about things like how to how to change locks without changing the key and how to install ceiling fans and new flooring options and things like that. So it's a, it's a good meeting for those of you who renovate or think you might be renovating sometime in the future properties that is at the usual location, which is the uh, CAA building, the Community Action Agency building in the Jordan Crossing at the corner of Reading and Seymour. You can check out CincinnatiRIA.com at CincinnatiREIA.com. Uh, there's also, if you go to that website, a Meet the Candidate Night coming up for Cincinnati RIA that we welcome all local landlords and real estate investors to attend. Again, that is CincinnatiRIA.com. More questions from our listeners. Um, here's a question from Michael in Cincinnati. He says, I wanted to see if you could help me evaluate a deal. The property is located in Clifton. For those of you who are not familiar with the Cincinnati area, that is the area immediately surrounding the University of Cincinnati, which although is not all student rentals, it is largely student rentals. He says the list price went from 234 to 200 to 185. It is a three unit. Each unit is supposed to generate eight ten a month in rental income, so that's twenty nine thousand one hundred sixty dollars per year. With taxes, insurance, and water, the net rent is twenty four six sixty. Houses on the street range from fifty to one forty or thirty five dollars a square foot. This house is thirty one hundred and thirty four square feet. County records show the market value at one twenty four, and the current owner is asking one eighty five. Now, let me let me cut to the chase here, Michael, and say I do not think it is a good deal. And then let me further explain that you are evaluating this based on a number of factors that really don't matter that much in residential real estate. 
Uh, it does not matter what the county has the property evaluated at. That, that could be uh, the result of the last sale. It could be that someone went in and did a, uh, a, a reassessment based on the condition because it sounds like it's vacant. Uh, the county tax records, and this is true throughout the country, bear very little, the, the, the evaluations bear very little relationship to what the property might actually be worth. So cross that one off your list of ways to find out what a property is worth. Price per square foot in residential real estate matters very, very little. There are places I go in the country where I always get quoted that people will say to me and the Florida is a good example. People will say to me, well, houses in this area sell for $124 a square foot, but I only paid $111 per square foot. And so I got a, a really good deal. Price per square foot in residential real estate doesn't really mean anything because uh, let's say that I have an 1100 square foot house that has three bedrooms and one bath. And then I have another 1100 square foot house that has three much smaller bedrooms with great big giant 200 square foot closets. And it has one bath. The square footage inside the closet is not worth as much as the square footage in the bedroom, is it? So that's a, that is a good indicator of value in certain types of properties, but they're all commercial properties. It's warehouse space, it's self storage, it's things like that. It is not residential real estate. So your evaluation that it's 35 bucks a square foot does not make any difference. What does make a difference, and this is what made me say that I'm not sure it is a good deal, is that you said properties on the street range from 50 to 140. This owner is asking 185. Now, the income analysis that you did, that is going to be important in a three-family unit. But if these other properties were also three families and they had basically the same layout, you know, three one-bedrooms or three two-bedrooms or whatever, the fact that other people are paying for between 50 and 140 should be telling you something. You did not say... If that 50 to 140 is only two sales, you did not say how far back those sales went. You did not say uh, what sales on adjoining streets of similar properties might be. Uh, usually when you are figuring out comparables, you do want to look within about a quarter to half mile radius, not just on that street. But if I am making a correct assumption here that there were a number of sales on that street, the top price sale was 140. These were not properties that were bank owned or otherwise we had any reason to believe they were in particular distress 184 is 185 is too much money for the property and just a quick note on your income evaluation you really don't have all of the expenses built into this uh, you don't have vacancy which in a student rental area can be high. It can be two months a year that you have a vacancy or three months a year that you have a vacancy and you don't have ongoing maintenance. And I also don't see any indication here of what might need to be done to the property to generate the $810 per unit in rent. So uh, there's not really enough information here for me to make a good determination, but from what you're telling me, I would say, no, it's not a good deal at 185. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. You can call us here at the studio with your questions on any topic related to real, life, to real estate investing at 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email. You can go to askvina.com and 
there's a little button there that says ask Vina a question you fill in the form and you'll send it as did bud in kenmore new york he says we bought a two-family home in may and are in the process of renovating the lower unit this is the unit where the previous owner had lived I have come to find out that our 86-year-old property has a shared meter problem. This means that all of the common area electrical usage must be on a separate meter. This could be a difficult and costly procedure considering there are electrical lines running in all different directions. Before I have the electrician come in and give me an estimate on adding in this new metered service, I have a question about including utilities with the rent along with the pros and cons of such an arrangement. My wife believes that if we include utilities, the tenants will leave all the lights on 24-7 and will end up losing money every month. Any feedback on how to go about including electric and other utilities with the rent and also have the tenants keep their usage low? Um, that's a very interesting question, Bud, because this shared meter problem has just become a big problem here in my area. And let me explain to listeners who may not have seen one of these properties before what the problem is. In a lot of our older multifamilies, they were built so that the owner was going to occupy one unit and then they could have another unit for their children or rent it out or whatever. When the properties were set up, because the owner lived downstairs, he also had on his meter what you're calling the common area utility. So in other words, the light in the basement, the light in the hallway leading upstairs, uh, usage that is not really attributable to either unit. It's, you know, when, when people go down to the basement to do their laundry, they flip the lights on. That's not, that doesn't make it their bill, right? This is so common in these older properties that it wasn't anything that most people had given a lot of thought to. They just said, well, sorry, the the guy in the lower unit pays for the lights in the basement. It's not that big a deal. It's 13 bucks a month or something. Well, now in our area, section eight has required us just recently to start separating out the common area utilities so that the tenant in one unit pays only for his utilities. The tenant in the other unit pays only for his utilities. And as you say, this can be a fairly complex and expensive undertaking because it means figuring out where the wires to the light downstairs are going right now and then rewiring it and putting in a new box and a new meter. So yes, this can be a several thousands of dollars undertaking, which means that a lot of people are trying to figure out what you're trying to figure out, which is, would it be easier for me just to include the tenants' utilities or just, just me pay them all uh, and raise their rents accordingly? What you will generally find is that you, although you can get more rent for a property where you are paying for the heat and water and electric, uh, you can't get enough more rent to cover the bill. So you're you're gonna you're gonna net less money. Your wife's concerned that people are gonna leave lights on all the time. Yeah, possibly. I'll tell you what the bigger concern is, is the heat. Tenants and properties where they have control of the heat but do not pay for it often will do things, and I've seen this with my own eyes, this is not landlord urban rumor, will have the heat at 85 degrees in the wintertime, and then they will be walking around with shorts and have the windows open because it's too hot. 
and you go to their house and you say, why do you not turn down the furnace, put on a sweater and close your windows? And they say, well, because it's too cold. It gets too cold in here. Well, it's obviously too hot now. So maybe we can find some balance that does not involve me keeping your house or apartment uh, at a temperature that uh, wherein you could probably grow bananas because it's so tropical in there. Um, electric, you know, it depends, assuming that the heat does not run off the electric, it's, it's, that's probably going to be less of a problem. And there are a couple of ways to handle that. One is just include the electric, raise the rent, you pay it. The other one that I am seeing more and more often in student rentals where there are, where, where this situation exists, where there might be an entire apartment building all on one electric service, is there is the rent. And then there is a utility fee paid on top of the rent, which is basically the call it the average electric bill divided by the number of units or divided by the square footage. So if I live in a two bedroom and the other person in the house lives in a one bedroom and my two bedrooms twice the square footage, my utility fee might be twice what theirs is, but it's not something that's recalculated month to month. I, I know what it is when I sign my lease. So if it's $113 a month when I signed the lease, it's going to be $113 a month throughout the entire term of the lease. So that's another way to handle it. And, um, you know, certainly keeping tenants aware that their utility, their utility usage is either costing them immediate money or may cost them money when it is time to raise the rents. Uh, might be a way to get them to conserve power. My first thought when I saw this question and thought that, you know, you wanted to, you just wanted to go ahead and re-meter everything was any place where the tenants are going to be coming and going and, and, and would normally switch on a light, like hallways again, um, put the lights on a motion sensor so that they come on the second the tenant opens the door and then go off after five minutes because that way nobody forgets to turn the light off and that will probably... Uh, save you a lot of money. But yes, you are in for a repair bill here or an upgrade bill here as you separate out this meter and this usage. Thank you for your question, bud. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. This is your last chance to send in a question by going to askvina.com or call us at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. For those of you who are new to the program, the last Wednesday of the month is almost always question and answer week so that we have a time when you can ask questions that just aren't covered during the normal course of a month here on real life real estate that is today so if you have any questions we've got about eh, five to seven minutes left here on the show to answer them 877-772-9658 is a uh, number that you can call if you'd like to call in with your question. You can also go to askvina.com and both send in your question and sign up for our weekly show reminder slash informational e-letter. A uh, question here from someone who did not include their name at all. You'll notice at the bottom of the the bottom of the form there it says name and from and that's where you're supposed to put you know I'm from Indianapolis or whatever uh, but I will answer the question anyway it says hi Vina this question is about using private lenders when you're a newbie what is the best way to ask a lender for money for wholesaling or retailing and how would you structure the deal 
And it goes on to say, what is a good course you would recommend to buy that will walk you through step-by-step details? Um, I cannot answer that last question, Mr. or Ms. Anonymous, because this is public radio and we do not, um, we do not recommend specific courses, sell things, etc. Uh, you can go back into the archives of Real Life Real Estate by going to WMKV's podcast and you'll find there are a number of programs that we've done in the past few years regarding private lending and legal ways to do it and smart ways to set it up and so on. So that that, that might get you a start. Uh, the, the disclaimer that I have to give before I even start to answer this question is that private lending is very heavily regulated by the state SEC. And unfortunately, how it's regulated and what the rules are vary from state to state. So you didn't tell me where you were from, so I can't exactly address what's what would go on in your state. But uh, I can say this. Be very rare for you to need money for wholesaling. The only time that you would ever do that is for is if for some reason it was your advantage to close the deal before you resold it. So that is very short-term money that is usually handled with professional companies uh, that are what's called transactional lenders. They're only going to loan you the money for one day. It's going to be at a high rate of interest, but about 3% of whatever you borrow, which doesn't sound like a high rate of interest, except you only borrowed it for one day. It's like a 10,000% rate of return if they can keep their money invested like that every day. Um, retailing, obviously, you you need relatively short-term money. And one of, the, one of the dangers that I see with new investors who are approaching private lenders, other than just that, you know, do, do you know enough to keep the private lender's money safe is always one concern, uh, is that they always underestimate the amount of time that they'll need the money and they try and they try and overpromise they say oh well, I'll have your money back in 6 weeks cuz I'm just sure I can fix up and resell this property in 6 weeks when they really should be asking for a year and then if the property sells in 6 weeks awesome if it sells in 6 months they're still okay if it sells in 364 days they're still okay uh in dealing with private lenders, and again, you only want to do that according to the rules of your state's SEC, you generally want to give them or tell them that you're going to need the money for longer than you actually believe that you will, just so you don't have to make that uncomfortable call after six months saying, yeah, I know I, know I said I'd pay you back this week, but the house hasn't sold yet. Also, the question about how do you structure the deal if it's a if it's a true private lender deal, it's structured the same way any loan is structured, which is that the lender gets a note and a mortgage uh, against the property. The note being the agreement to repay, and the mortgage being the security instrument. And uh, I suspect what that question really meant was how much interest would you pay on the loan, and so on. I can tell you that for uh, experienced investors who have a track record and who are borrowing money consistently from private lenders, uh, the going rate is between 6 and 8% fixed. For a brand new investor, I would think your best private lender would really be someone who also had experience in real estate and who could step in and help you with the deal if necessary. That kind of person... It, because they're going to be more heavily involved, might be looking for 12%, 15% interest. And that would be okay for you to pay if you were also, if it were short term and you were also getting 
somebody who had some additional things other than just the money, some experience, information, advice, things like that. So I hope that answered your question, whoever you are. I appreciate you asking, though. A question from Jay, who is in Limerick, Pennsylvania. Didn't know there was a Limerick, Pennsylvania. And if George was in here right now, something would be happening regarding a five-line rhyme. I'm quite certain of it. Uh, His question is, what is your preferred way of doing direct mail for motivated sellers? Is it a yellow letter, printed letter, postcard, lumpy mail, telegram? (laughs) Telegram. That's good, Jay. I... I've never tried that. I, I might I might just try that. That would be an unusual enough delivery mechanism that I'm certain it would get attention. Uh, as to the other things, yellow mail, printed letter, postcard, lumpy mail, I have used all of them and I continue to use all of them. My question would be, who is the motivated seller? Where did I get the list? Where did I get the name? How, what kind of motivation do I think those folks have? Because for instance, the thing that you're referring to as a yellow letter, uh, that's what's commonly called in the business these days, is a handwritten or a fake handwritten letter that's very informal and says, I'd like to buy your house, give me a call if you're interested in selling. That would not be appropriate for an estate, would it? I don't think you feel good about sending that letter to someone who just recently lost a loved one and inherited a property. Lumpy mail, which is mail that is sent out either in an unusual container, such as I've seen I've seen uh, people send letters in coconuts. I'm not kidding. That always gets opened. Or it is something included within the mailing that that makes it lumpy. So uh, when you receive those free pens from pen companies that are trying to get you to buy pens, that's that's lumpy mail because you pick up the envelope, it's heavy, and you feel that pen in there and you open it. Those th- That kind of mailing is expensive enough that you really want to use it on high profit potential deals. In other words, uh, the open rate on lumpy mail is higher than it is on other kind of mail. The response rate is higher. But if what you end up getting is a 5% higher response rate on a bunch of junker properties that you're going to make five grand a piece on, you probably don't want to spend $10,000 mailing out lumpy mail. If on the other hand, you were pursuing luxury properties or apartment buildings or commercial properties or something where the potential outcome of any successful deal was extremely high profits, lumpy mail would be a good thing to use. There's a lot of pros and cons to each one of these. I have used them all. I continue to use them all. You just have to think through what's the cost, what's the, pro- what's the uh, nature of the person receiving it, is it appropriate for that person. Appreciate your email, Jason, and all the folks who participated today in Real Life Real Estate Investing's question and answer week. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.